Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and half an hour filled with care, country walks, seismic sounds and an idea of what Leonard Cohen would have sounded like had he been born in Renaissance France. But we have a West of Ireland walk into 2023 to start the week with the return of Jennifer Walsh, who's been discovering that not even the rural landscape is untouched by the latest shifts in tech. This is Jennifer Walsh's Things no things. My house in Roscommon is in the middle of nowhere, up a tiny boreen bounded on one side by a stretch of land which is used for commercial forestry. For the first ten years I lived in the house, I was surrounded by huge conifers. I liked to walk and I'd often take the track through the forest winding my way up and down the hills, completely walled in by the trees. It was very rare I'd ever see another person. The summer before last, though, all the trees were unceremoniously cut down, and amidst the shock of the devastation, the surrounding landscape was revealed. The rolling hills of the track suddenly gave stunning views of Schlieve on Eren, Arigna and Loch Key. I was particularly delighted to be able to see Schlieve on Eren for several reasons. The first is that it is where the Tua de Danon landed when they first came to Ireland. But more importantly to me, Schlieve on Eren was a node in Ireland's ancient communications network. A fire could be lit at Ishnach, the mythological centre of Ireland, and seen at a variety of key locations far away, including Schlievoniren. Someone standing at the top of Schlievoniren could then light their own fire, which could be seen at locations on the coast. In this way, a message could be sent from Ishnach to Nochnaray. Since the trees came down, I've been able to see Schlievoniren clearly, and each time I wonder if I'll see a beacon lit there signalling to me, well, who knows what? That it's Bialtana, marauders are coming, there's druidic unrest. And so I walk that track every day I'm in Roscommon, looking out for the beacon and counting the precious time I have before the next plantation rises up to block out the view again. I know how it feels to walk the land at dawn in early spring, I know how it feels to walk through mist in the depths of winter. But I also know the land is an industrial site, a factory for trees which will be felled every 20 years. And that means that, ultimately, its core identity is virtual. The land, at the end of the day, is an entry in a ledger owned by a bank who refused to sell it. Over the holiday, I was walking the deforested forest track one evening, close to dusk, and a car came crawling up over the rough stone of the hill. The driver stopped and we chatted for a while. I'd never met the man before, but as is so often the case in the country, we knew people in common. He told me that he'd driven up the track to muse over memories from his childhood, and he shared stories from the area. And then our talk turned to AI. 
we discussed ChatGPT, the AI chatbot which OpenAI released late last year, a chatbot that can write essays and code, answer questions and explain concepts. We had both used ChatGPT and we talked about what it might mean for the future to live and work alongside an AI like it. It might have seemed an unlikely conversation to have, gazing as we were over a beautiful rural landscape. But it seemed completely apt to me, because this is my experience of the West, a place which is mythological, ancient, seemingly eternal, but also temporary, industrial, and very much technological. Jennifer Walsh there with her latest Things Know Things. The School of Wild Listening is a new project which plans to use our ears and various strategies for listening to the world to cultivate a new relationship with the planet. For its kick-off event, composer and sound artist David Stalling is bringing his surround soundscapes, including what he calls audifications of seismic events recorded in the North Atlantic, sounds usually so low that they escape human hearing. Culturefile spoke to the School of Listening's Robert Coleman and to David Stalling about cultivating wild listening. The School of Wild Listening is, a, is about exploring your own practice of listening in the, uh, in the widest or wildest sense. In my practice, I, I try to be open to listening to, to many different sounds and my practice is quite varied um, in that uh, I work with, with music and with recording and with composition. For this project, I'm presenting some seismic audifications. These are uh, frequencies that we, we cannot hear um, usually, and in collaborating with the seismologists, uh, we were able to, to find a way of making these sounds audible. My name is Robert Coleman. I'm a composer and sound artist. Um, and so, yeah, I guess my background in, in composition, I've written a lot of chamber music. And I guess over the last few years then, I've also um, gone into this area, I guess what I would call ecological sound art. I've been getting more interested in this area over recent years, and I've noticed a lot of different composers and musicians who kind of use field recording as part of their practice and wear different ways and so I felt like there was sort of a you know a sort of an awareness there or sort of a lot of people within this working within this field um the, the school of wild listening then is a platform I'm calling a platform for the discussion and dissemination of ecological sound art and so it's a place where people sound artists or artists of any kind musicians or just kind of normal listeners can come and explore these sort of ideas of listening um, and listening to the world around them and kind of hopefully learn a little bit about it as well. I was on a ship. I was on a, a deployment mission for uh, an array of o ocean bottom seismometers um, in the North Atlantic. Um, so we went out for two and a half weeks um, on the Celtic Explorer so it was quite a rough sea and it was quite an experience to, to be at sea and uh, we deployed these um, 
uh, units, um, 18 in total, and the actual act of recording didn't take place until these units were deployed and they started started recording for, for 18 months. The unit is, uh, it's, a, it's a high-end um, seismometer and a hydrophone. These units can record periods of probably around 10 minutes uh, for, for one sound wave uh, to complete their periods. Um, so they're, they're precision instruments um, with an anchor and um, they sink to uh, the ocean floor. Uh, and then they have a recording device and a battery um, that and a GPS uh, beacon, and uh, they record for about I think they record for about sixteen or eighteen months, and then uh, they uh, release themselves, and then the buoyancy uh, will will bring them up to the uh, to the surface again uh, from uh, you know three thousand meters um, down there. I was lucky enough to um, make a connection with the team of seismologists. I was on board the ship as an artist in residence, and we started talking about sound waves and seismic waves, and uh, we found a lot of parallels um, through my uh, practice as a sound artist and their practice as a, a seismologist. The waves and the rules with which these waves propagate are actually the same. Um, the, all the physics behind it, it's just the frequencies are, um, are very different. There are lots of sonifications of sort of physical events, you know, star collisions or black holes. But these are all sonifications. They're kind of like a digital representation of the data, whereas what we're listening to here with the uh, seismic events is we're, we're actually listening to the sound waves at a higher speed. And so, so you have sort of different um, acceleration levels um, in order to listen to different um, kinds of events. So you have the, the earthquakes, um, of obviously, um, but then you have uh, the earth hum, the hum, the hum of the the earth uh, surface the vibrations of the earth's surface they're um, called ambient seismic noise which is basically composed of seismic waves excited by the the interactions of the ocean waves with the seafloor and then they're they're sort of bouncing around uh, within the earth's crust and um, so if you imagine the earth as being a, a globe and uh, so this globe is, is constantly vibrating, undulating. This is one way in which to certainly, a very ideal way in which to experience sort of soundscape recordings or recordings that are really dealing with the environment in that kind of way. But it doesn't necessarily have to be like that. Um, I'm imagining, you know, there will be times maybe when we might just audition work that are kind of known work from different artists that might be just simply stereo recordings um, but then I'm also 
for sure imagining times where we might just totally leave the studio behind and go outdoors. Basically, I'm sort of imagining any kind of format that can support this idea of just engaging with ecological sound, art and, and music in some way. And that can be a lot of different ways, I think. The School of Wild Listening's Robert Coldman there, and you heard also from composer David Stalling. I don't really care, do you? Was the message painted on a Zara coat worn by Melania Trump in 2018 on her visit to migrants detained on the Texas-Mexico border? While its meaning was hotly debated in the world of 2018, it was certainly a moment in the sun for the word care. Outside Trump world, care is a blossoming area of research, and a conference this week at TUD looked at ways care might be integrated into our understanding of everything from science fiction to politics, education to heritage and climate change. One keynote at the event came from the Irish scholar Kathleen Lynch, whose most recent book, Care and Capitalism, looks at how our economic order edges out care and how we might coax it back in. Culturefile asked Catherine Lynch if this more widespread attention paid to at least the word care might come with harms. All language can become co-opted. That is the problem and what happens is the language becomes colonised, like, like the word diversity now. It really is colonised. And in a sense, when it goes out into the ether, you can't control that. You can contest it, you can disagree with it. Indeed, that's part of what happens in cultural practice. Care is a dangerous word because it can often be used to justify domination, patronising people, especially people with disabilities, have huge issues with the word care, which I totally respect. I, I think there is that danger in it. So there is a dark side to care, which I'm absolutely aware of. We saw it ourselves in the care of people in, you know, in the Magdalene laundries and, and uh, industrial schools, which was far from caring. But it was done in the name of care. So that's always a danger with any concept that would be misappropriated. I think we have to accept that and challenge it when it happens. As a kind of area of uh, research and, and uh, an academic discipline, where are the roots of care? As you say, it's not something that arose with the pandemic, even if people began to focus on it more. Research on care began, I suppose, it has really been the feminist scholars who have led the way on care as a concept. That isn't to say it didn't exist in other forms and in other contexts uh, prior to that. But in terms of the scholarly work on care, certainly in the social sciences, it has been led by people, economists um, like Nancy Folber, the philosopher, I suppose, political philosopher, Joan Tronto, uh, in the social sciences, Arlie Horschild. There are many people, uh, Eva Kate, Donna Haraway, she would be a person from that field who has had quite a significant impact on highlighting the interdependencies of the human condition and how, in fact, our relationship with nature has an obligation to be a caring relationship. So I think there's a whole new debate internationally about care as an ethic that should inform our scholarly work, especially uh, the whole idea, as I was talking about today, of thinking with care. If we thought about things through a care-related lens rather than through a dominance lens or though a profit-making lens, we would think about things very differently. But if we got up every morning and we said, OK, what can I do today 
to help other people to make the world a better place. That's very different from saying, how can I advance my career? How can I make more money? How can I get control of some market for my product? It's a completely different way of thinking. And we need a new kind of hardwiring of the human condition into a care consciousness. The kind of idea of care as a way of looking at uh, social practice in general is is kind of one aspect of what's happening here. But there is this other idea. You know, there's, there's this Zizek idea that it's more, it's easier to think of the end of the world than the end of capitalism. But care, in your uh, reference, is a way for thinking of the end of capitalism. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I've written a book, as you know, on care and capitalism. And in it, I argue that we need to replace the logic of capitalism, which is profit-led and accumulation-led, with the logic of care. Now, that sounds so simplistic, but it is hugely important idea at the same time. Because if we start to think of our actions every day at an individual level and how we care for one another, how we do not care, how... We are enabled or not enabled to care. Uh, how, for example, I thought was very interesting during the pandemic, one of the things that people learned was how much time they spent commuting. And people began to realise how much time, in some senses, they wasted sitting in cars, going places, time they could have spent with people they really wanted to be with rather than travelling and commuting to work. Now, some people have to commute. I'm not saying that... This can all end or anything like that. But it's because we build houses that are too far away and people can't afford to buy the houses or apartments that are, they, can't, they won't get, uh, you know, state-provided housing or social housing. And so they end up in these long commutes, often on low wages, and they've no time. They've no time to care for themselves. They've no time to care for their families. They've no time often to socialise. They're too tired at the end of the day. And I think that that whole issue uh, arose in the pandemic and I suppose that's what care and capitalism is about it's saying how does capitalism as a as a mindset as much as a practice undermine care is part of it the fault of the media because one of the points that's come out a few times today is that we we do kind of describe our world as neoliberal and productivity and personal fulfillment are its goals whereas there is this other activity going on and and maybe it's ignored by people like me maybe maybe that's true I think that to some degree is true I often am critical of the mainstream print media and my own head like without talking about it much and maybe the television media I often think do they get people at all who read outside the dominant paradigms of the UK, Ireland and America. Do they not read what happens in mainstream Europe? There's a lot happening that is alternative. In the economic area, for example, there are loads of cooperative banks in Germany and in and, and Italy. Like, why are we so insular? And I think it is... I, I, I often think they could do with people who are critical sociologists in a lot of these areas. Well, I'm not saying because I'm a sociologist, but people who are critical thinkers and who go outside the dominant paradigm. And the other thing I don't accept, people say, oh, people wouldn't understand. That's ridiculous. People wouldn't, they only want to hear the familiar. People are really interested in new ideas. If anybody's interested in what we've been talking about here, you have sort of crystallised a lifetime's work into into the book we have on the table there, Care and Capitalism. What, what do you hope will happen when people have that in their hand? Well, I hope 
I'll tell you what I suggest is if people aren't academics, you know what you should always do, and I often do this if I don't know the field myself. I go to the back and the index and I find words that are key that interest me. And I pick them out and I read those sections. Like there is a chapter on time, for example, which I think a lot of people would find very relevant for the world in which we live. There's a chapter on animals, violence against animals. And of course, on love, there's a chapter on love. What is love? Kathleen Lynch there at this week's Techne Logos and the Neg Anthropocene Conference at TUD, more of which in the coming weeks. And if you'd like to get to work on the index, Care and Capitalism by Kathleen Lynch is in the very best bookshops. Everything that Leonard Cohen and a medieval troubadour have in common next, brought together in the music of Joel Friedrichsen. Friedrichsen is a German-based American bass singer specialising in early music, but every now and then he creates a hands-across-the-centuries project, bringing together, in a previous example, the music of Nick Drake with the sounds of John Dowland. This time around he's taken a comment from Cohen to wed Cohen's precise melancholia with music from the French Renaissance, in a collection he's called A Day with Suzanne, as Joel Friedrichsen explained to Culturefile. As far as Leonard, when he was older, you know, I don't think he really sang very much at all, did he? He mostly spoke. I'm a low bass, as people who know me know, um, and, uh, and so... Um, I mean, I didn't have to, to smoke so much to, uh, to get there, you know. So, <laughs> In fact, I don't, don't smoke at all. But I know that Leonard did, and he always said, you know, my voice, his voice got lower and lower, you know, so as the time went on. But um, I suppose I did feel like I didn't have to work too hard to get to the high notes with, with, uh, with, with Leonard, you know. So. <laughs> Mozart of starting point was with the French Renaissance music. That came to me because I heard Cohen describe himself as a chansonnier, where he was commenting about what he felt himself to be as a singer-songwriter or like a, like a Bob Dylan or what did he, what was, where did he see himself. And he said, well, actually, I see myself as a chansonnier. And I'm, I've tried to understand that comment more and more deeply as I've worked on this project the whole time, uh, what he really meant, because I don't think he meant one of the maybe the popular chansonniers that, that we would think of uh, now. I always saw him as a troubadour. He was kind of always commented on as a troubadour, as we all are. I started by really looking for themes, I must say. I looked in the poetry. In the end, one could say I'm a singer because I respond to words and I respond to, to poetry. And so I looked at, uh, at Leonard's songs very carefully. Sometimes I, an idea occurred to me right away when I went knowing a Leonard song that I wanted to do. I, I really looked through his, his whole repertoire again from the very early stuff to the stuff he did just before he passed away in 2016. And I found songs that just appealed to me, and then I tried to take these 
these themes or these ideas and, and think about early music and what I knew. To tell her that you have no love to give her, then she gets you on her way. I found this song by Pierre Guédron, who was like the Dowland of France, uh, composed a lot of songs and beautiful things for, for lute and, and voice. It's called Un jour l'amoureuse Sylvie, and, um, and it's, a, it's a lovely little text about two shepherds, a shepherd and a shepherdess who meet like in a field, and, and they do their kind of shepherdy and shepherdess thing, you know, they where they get together and they kiss and stuff like that. So <laughs> um, it's a very sweet piece, and, and I thought, okay, it's a perfect, like, kissing song for a thousand kisses deep. I'm getting fixed, I'm back on Boogie Street. You lose your grip, and then you sleep into the masterpiece. And maybe I admires to drive and promises to so when I went in then to the Thousand Kisses Deep, what I tried to do and what I what I took was although the the the, the, the metric of the song is different, one is in three, one is in four, um, I kept themes going in the Thousand Kisses Deep of Cohen. So what you hear in there, if you listen, is you hear basically this Anjou Lamoureuse Sylvie, this Guédon song coming into the accompaniment and enriching the accompaniment of the Cohen song. And sometimes when the night is First of all, I was really moved by Leonard's song. You want it darker, and uh, and then I and I looked around for a, 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 let's say a pairing. When I remembered a song by Thomas Crequion, "Comme uh, souvient de ma triste fortune," um, I looked at it again and I I thought this 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 sort of refrain and theme that comes through with him about about sad fortune. You know, he says, "When I remember my sad fate." Uh, that I have lost the solace of my eyes. I must lament my great misfortune, of which day and night I must say, alas, sad fate. Um, this is the, that's the song. I, it's, it's a four-part uh, chanson uh, that Crequillon wrote, uh, and there is something we would call an intabulation, which means that they wrote tablature for the lute and a solo voice. And so I have this version that I've had for, for many years in my repertoire that I knew of, of this intabulated version, this version for lute and voice and one voice. But here on the CD then, I was able to combine them. So I actually am playing a kind of more ornamented uh, version of the, of the chanson. Uh, but I have two viola da gambas that can each take a line. 
I sing one of the lines, which is the melody basically. And uh, although it's hard to say in one of these pieces, everybody has the melody at some point. <laughs> and then uh, and then we have Emma-Lisa, who also plays the lute. She's playing one of the other lines in the chanson. And then I just took sort of threads or pieces um, from the text, from the melody of, uh, of a Crequillon song, and wove it into the texture of uh, You Want It Darker. If you are the dealer, let me out of the game. If you are the I would say I never tried to copy Leonard. I did try to, though, really adopt a, uh, a certain way of singing both repertoires, also the French repertoire, but just to give the songs the meaning that they, that they, can, that they can have with my voice. Joel Friedrichson there in his collection, A Day with Suzanne, a tribute to Leonard Cohen with French Renaissance chanson, is out now. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more polyphonic rumblings next week. But until then, there's the job of subscribing to the Culture File feed on your favourite podcast, shall we say, platform. Bye now. <laughs>